with COVID happening, it feels like a really good time to rethink what the future looks like for living. Hello, and welcome to Sink or Swim, a weekly podcast brought to you by RentSync, where we take a deep dive into the prop tech, multifamily, and rental housing industry. In each episode, we uncover the technologies and strategies used to help overcome operational challenges and increase the value of your multifamily investments. So let's get into our conversation today. Welcome back to Sink or Swim. I'm your host, Nicolina Savelli. And on this podcast, I chat with multifamily and prop tech experts, experts to learn how you can reach more renters, sign more leases, and maximize the value of your assets. And today I have Zane Jaffer, who sold his last startup to Blackstone for $780 million and is now a partner at Blue Field Capital, which has a $1 billion real estate portfolio, including investments in land, apartments, warehouses, hotels, offices, and senior care facilities. Zane also founded the Venture Capital Fund, which invests in early stage prop tech startups. Thank you so much for joining me today, Zane. Nicolina, thank you so much as well for having me on the show. (laughs) Now, we've got a lot to unpack on this episode. But first, I always like to start at the top and kind of discuss your educational and professional background and really how this has served you in your career. And how did you find so much success with your last startup before joining Bluefield? If you could share some of an abbreviated version of kind of your history and how it led you to where you are today. Everything always feels like or seems like an overnight success when you're looking at it from the outside. I guarantee you it was not. It was, you know, at least a decade prior to the exit or even two decades prior, it was just failure after failure. We're up in a poor neighborhood in the UK and I was just addicted to computers, building websites, and that kept me out of trouble. I didn't want to go and pursue an education and a degree but my parents, you could say, being of Indian origin, you know, they value education a lot, even though they didn't have any education themselves, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my family's the same. <laughs> they forced me to go to university against my will. And I got into a good university at King's College London. And I'd said to them, well, look, I'm allowed to apply to six universities. If I get into King's, right, then I'll give up my startup ideas that I'm working on and I'll, I'll go do that. And I was like, okay, wait, you know, one in six chance. And it wasn't really one of the six chance. I got accepted to all six, right? And so let me renegotiate here because I didn't really get the terms figured out. So I was like, okay, here's the thing. Being that we're all Indian, in our family at least, we seem to value hygiene a lot, which means, you know, I want my own toilet. More like eight different apartment student housing complexes you could live in. And I was like, okay, I want the one that has the ensuite toilet, right? I was like, you know, I'm probably not going to get that. And this time there was a true one in eight chance, it felt like, because it was like a lottery system and they only accept you in one or preferences or whatever. And I somehow got it. That's awesome. So that was the decision. That was the decision as to where you went to university and what campus you chose. Yeah. Well, changes the trajectory of my life, at least at that point. <laughs> I thought the negative because I would now have to give up the startup I was working on. It was decided by a damn toilet. That's an incredible story. That's an incredible origin story, I will say. <laughs> One of many failures, you know, uh, that I went So, I mean, obviously that toilet served you well. You have done some incredible things <laughs> in your time. So, so how did that serve you in your career trajectory and kind of with your startup ideas? Obviously, you pursued those. So how did that come to be? And how were you able to kind of get your education while also pursuing your passions, I guess? 
Yeah, I was one of those people that went to university and barely attended any lectures. It just was so involved with social activities and I was doing little ventures here and there. And it feels like every student when they're at university wants to launch a company targeting other students. And so I was working on things like that. I also started the um, at King's College London in the UK, the uh, Entrepreneurship Society, which is now called King's Business Club, which went on to do really well. And I think 15, 16, you know, years in a row now, it's, it's just been growing and growing. And I came across someone else having started that club who was running a startup. And I was like, hey, it's really cool what you're doing. I'd love to sort of check it out. And I just loved his idea. And I was like, can I join you? And I joined really as like the first employee of that startup. And, you know, I decided to hedge my risks and because he couldn't pay me a salary like, okay, I'm also going to do a part-time, I'm going to do a, another degree, like a master's degree at UCL in technology entrepreneurship. And I liked that course because it wasn't as academic as it sounds. It was based on the Stanford University curriculum. And it was around, you know, coming up with a business idea and writing up a business plan. And I convinced the professor two things. Number one, can I do the course part-time? They weren't a fan of the idea, but I was like, well, look, you know, you're teaching us about running startups. How about I actually work for a startup and, you know, I try to grow it. Anyway, that startup crashed and burned, obviously. <laughs> we had to do this dissertation, thesis. It's like, oh, God, so annoying. I've got to write this huge, huge thesis. Well, wait, the thesis is a business plan. I said, look, I need to delay my education for like another year because, you know, I'm trying to raise funding for the startup. And I made a deal with the head of the school. I said, look, given that we're supposed to write a business plan, surely an academic shouldn't be judging the quality of the business plan. Surely it should be judged on its merits. And if I raise money for my idea, partly through the business plan, right? Can you give me like, can I get 100%? You were so confident I was going to fail, right? He said, okay, if you raise more than, you know, at that time, most pre-seed rounds were like a few hundred thousand. He was like, okay, if you raise a million from some qualified investors, sure. I ended up raising $2 million in the US for my startup idea with a deck and, you know, the business plan, which I sort of wrote after. And I had to hold him to account. And I managed to get like a distinction on the course purely as a result of that. So yeah, that's how my education served me, I guess. I learned more running those startups. And I would argue I wrote more from the failed experiences than I did from my success. I think that that's a typical kind of, I mean, if you're willing to keep doing it and then keep learning, then that's really the key to startup success. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, obviously you sold your last startup for 700, or yes, your most recent startup for 780 million. Now, how did you find success with that specific startup? Obviously you learned success and failure early on. So obviously perseverance was probably key, but more so what was the core kind of selling point and kind of technology behind that startup? As a VC today, I look for startups that are part of a huge market and I can't be self-promoting and also say a good team, right? But that's sort of what happened at that time. We hired really good people and we were in a huge market. Mobile apps were starting to take off, but we were still at the period where, like as of today at this podcast, right? There's hype around the metaverse, there's hype around NFTs, well, in those days, mobile apps were also getting hot, but the, most people were not really getting it. You know, it was, it was very complicated to explain to people. And here I was thinking, okay, mobile apps are taking off. What if we bring video ads to mobile phones? Like that sounds like a really cool idea. 
I'm betting that the new generation is not going to be reading their old newspapers and billboards and watching analog, you know, TV. I bet people are going to consume video content on mobile phones. So how do we create an advertising experience around that? And that's what we did. And I remember when I was trying to raise funding, very few people got it. Even people from the industry in advertising didn't get it, you know. But I encountered comments like this. I encountered comments which were basically like, mobile apps why it's like you got this like flashlight apps well people browse the internet this is the world wide web this is about yahoo and aol ruling the world why are you trying to build something for mobile apps and then the sophisticated strategic investors would say oh yeah we love mobile so mobile web right i'm like not the safari browser on your you know, really bad iphone at the time we're talking about mobile apps and people just didn't get it and you know, we were there quite early and we took off like crazy. First year revenues, 850,000. Second year revenues, 15 million. Second year revenue, that's quite a jump. Can you talk about potentially what happened there? Was marketing involved on that or what happened? So we went from 850 to 15 million to 56 million. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And then we sort of plateaued for a while. Did people start to get it after that? Oh, yeah. People that were telling me, I just don't see how we can generate a, even a 10x return. But we're investing in a $5 million valuation. How can you get to $50 million? You'd need to be like a million, maybe $2 million a year in revenue. How about we were doing that per day by the you know time you know, <laughs> company exited? So really, things took off and we built a scalable model. I think we were just part of a big trend and we got very lucky in that sense. And we also, we took video ads and we didn't just like... We hated how ads looked at the time, and we thought, let's go after a niche. Let's go after gaming apps. And with gaming apps, let's figure out how to make video ads a natural part of the user experience. So what we did was we invented the concept where if you're playing a game and you die, game's over, buddy. You can buy the in-app purchase for $3, or check this, you can watch a video ad. I choose that selection every time. Yeah. And everyone else did, it turns out, right? And mobile apps want to see their retention go through the roof and churn reduce, and they would actually make more money showing video ads, and that's what we did. I'm sorry, I'm the guy that pioneered that. That is genius, though. Wow. And what year was this? 2010, 2011 is when I started. 2012, 2013 is when things just started to explode. Amazing. So I guess the next question and the next step would be what led you to joining or partnering at Bluefield Capital? You know, I worked so hard and I went for years and years without a salary. At the same time, I saw a lot of folks who levered up to their necks, bought properties and made a killing. And I just saw how is it that they're able to gain this leverage they can even refi and get their capital back. If they sell, they can do a 1031 exchange. They've got cash flow coming in. I want a piece of this. Of course. Yeah. I think everyone does now. And I think everyone's kind of doing it now. <laughs> right. And when you study how a lot of people made extreme amounts of wealth, real estate's generally one of the common factors. A lot of billionaires have come from real estate. And real estate becomes a large part of people's portfolio when they reach a certain amount of net worth. Assets under management. And for me, I thought, I want to actually learn more about real estate. It's such a different thing. And, you know, that's why I joined Bluefield. I felt I was doing things individually to start with. I was investing in projects and I put money in opportunity zones and 
I did hard money lending. I bought multifamily apartments. I bought single family rentals. I did a lot of things. And I felt, you know, I'm making a lot of mistakes and I really believe it's about being part of a good team. How about I join a team that's just around the right size so I can join them. I can take a seat at the table. I can put a lot of money with them and I can buy things. And Bluefield's done that. Bluefield's got a lot of multifamily primarily multifamily, but then also, you know, and within that build to rent townhomes is a, is a niche that we're starting to really see huge success with. But also, as you mentioned earlier, when you introduced me, hospitality, senior care, industrial, no office, thankfully, actually, but a little bit of flex, you know, space too. So yeah, I joined them and I then decided, let me start a venture capital fund because I miss technology and I just see so many things that are broken. And so that's what led me to focus on my niche, which is prop tech. Awesome. Now, I mean, I kind of want to, I know this isn't part of the questions, but you've just mentioned something that I kind of wanted to just talk about a little bit and go off script. But what would you say is kind of the early mistakes that you made that you wish, if you could go back, maybe you would change it, maybe you wouldn't, but maybe you learn from them. So is there anything that you feel you could share for maybe early investors or someone who might be early on in kind of multifamily? Oh, not mistakes as a founder, because I could write books on that. But if you mean- Oh yeah, no. In real estate, in real estate investing, yes. So I, because I come from a tech background and I was investing in startups, I learned to analyze opportunities based on the passion of the person pitching me. You certainly do not want to buy the passion of that real estate developer pitching you their project or the broker telling you this is a great deal. You want to scrutinize the numbers. We throw away financial forecasts and business plans when we receive them in venture capital. It's like, why are you projecting five years out? Well, let me tell you, in in real estate, you better make sure those every assumption is fine-tuned, whether it's your rent growth, whether it's your interest rate, whether it's your exit cap rate. So that was something that I didn't have the discipline around to start with, and I relied too much on the representations of other people. And those representations were not honest at all. But hey, you know, what can you do? Live and learn, yeah. Exactly. And I'd also say you need to pick a niche unless you're part of a bigger platform. So Bluefield has quite a diverse, you know, portfolio of real estate throughout the US. But if you're just getting in and trying to do it yourself, you're going to get your butt kicked unless you become the expert in a zip code or an expert in a really niche asset class. And multifamily is not a niche asset class, right? We're talking really, really niche. And I'm a fan of that, which is why, you know, I love what Bluefield's doing with the build to rent townhome concept, which is really taking off. So I'd say focus on your niche, even better, be the expert in a zip code for a certain asset class. That's great advice. Yeah. That's what I'd say. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So moving on to real estate and what Bluefield is doing right now, uh, you have a mixed portfolio and you've kind of mentioned acquired investments that are really standing out to you right now. You're saying the built to rent townhomes. Can you elaborate a little bit about why that's such an exciting opportunity or what you're seeing there? Yeah. Over time, real estate goes in cycles. And we got to a point where we realized one point we were able to buy buildings way below replacement costs, but then the cost of lumber and the cost of construction has been increasing. And then we got to a point where, hold on a second, People are buying stabilized assets because they want yield. And now suddenly it's cheaper just to build. And, you know, I'd rather build a new product rather than buy like a 1980s concept where you're going to have a lot of uh, capital expenses and plumbing issues. And I've seen it all. I don't want to talk, right? You have PTSD from your. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've got a bunch of 1970s, you know, multifamily buildings that I bought that are always in need of constant repair. And so we wanted something of a newer vintage. And we also felt that with COVID happening, it feels like a really good time 
to rethink what the future looks like for living. And we felt that people want more and more spaces. People are struggling to rent. And when they do rent, they're getting really tiny spaces. So if we go slightly further out and we can build like a community with larger square feet, with a yard where the dog can run around, or, you know, there's a garage or garage, as Americans say, that would really work. And wow, we really hit it gold there because we bought, I think now we've probably got 10 plots of land that we've been developing. And we're trying to do five to 10 a year right now across the U.S., in regions too, and, and we got lucky, we went with regions that we analyzed and we felt population growth seems pretty solid. The diversity of employment seems good, so you're not too reliant on a military base or a hospital or whatever, right? Oil and gas, which also has seen a lot of volatility. Really good, safe, secure employment base. And feels like a place where people want to go and create families. And rather than buying, they can rent a home. And single family rentals have been taking off and this is sort of a niche within that. So yeah, that's sort of basically saying what led us to this is we've been doing that now and it's working really well. And our assumptions have just been, we were too conservative. I wish we bought everything we looked at, but yeah, it's working out well. Yeah. It's funny you say that because the last conversation I had was with a marketing director at Fitzrobia and he said specifically that three bedroom apartments, three bedroom built to rent apartments are taking off. And I mean, we don't even have the data really on three bedroom because there's just not that many available, but yet the demand for them is there. So it makes so much sense that, I mean, you were forward thinking and understanding that people wanted space. They can't afford homes. So they need to basically rent a home like their apartment homes now because their long-term kind of plans are renting now. That's just kind of become the reality for a lot of people. So having that space is definitely ideal and jumping on that trend is obviously important. So, I mean, you've kind of talked about this and I guess what I would like to do is talk about your focus and your expertise in prop tech and how you've seen the industry evolve over the last two years since the pandemic began, because I feel like when I started was exactly two years ago in the real estate multifamily rental housing space. And when I started, the education and the awareness of technology was so low, it felt like we were innovators in the space. And now I feel like people are beginning to catch up. So I'd love to hear kind of what you've seen evolve over the last two years in PropTech. Are you looking to connect with more renters in Quebec and fill units fast? When you syndicate your properties with RentSync, you'll have free access to some of the most popular rental listing sites in the province, including Louay.ca and Logique Quebec. Plus, we've upgraded our autoresponder tool so you can instantly translate your emails in French to better engage with all your prospects. If you're currently a RentSync client, your account manager can help you get set up or if you're looking for more information, visit rentsync.com forward slash Quebec dash rental dash listings. Now let's get back to the show. And I started the venture capital fund just as the pandemic hit because I felt like, okay, this is going to create a monumental shift and change in technology. You hear this a lot in PropTech that the trends are the trends, but COVID accelerated the trends by like a decade. Certain asset classes came under tremendous pressure. There were so many folks that only did retail and office and in those sectors and hotels too, those three sectors, wow, there has been so much change and efficiency that's come as a result of technology. I mean, even if you zoom into hotels, the idea of contactless check-ins, that was such a game changer and, you know, being able to do everything through your mobile phone and application 
and being able to, you know, unlock everything like a smart lock or, or even if you take the residential side, residential and multifamily have done really well. But because of COVID regulations, the whole contactless trend was powerful because people were now doing self-guided tours and, you know, 3D virtual tours suddenly became a thing because now I don't want to really risk. And I was scared too. I was looking around and touring things to buy and I didn't really want to go expose myself. And so I'd say, you know, can we take a 3D virtual scan of each vacant unit and can I just see how it looks and do my inspection that way? You know, we did a lot of investments in that. And then other sectors boom, like, you know, multifamily residential, but also industrial. I mean, wow, the supply chain sector completely just created a whole new set of opportunities because everyone's now ordering things on Amazon and everyone's lobbies are getting filled with these big Amazon boxes and things aren't arriving on time and factories are shutting down everywhere because of constant lockdowns. And so the whole supply chain needs to be reevaluated. And that online shopping became massive as if it wasn't massive already. Amazon was the best in the world to own over this period and potentially for the foreseeable future. So yeah, I made investments across the entire spectrum of prop tech and it was exciting. I think uh, Office really got hit a lot. And with Office, you started to see more of a repurposing of space and things like Figuring out our real estate and having occupancy analytics to figure out what spaces do we need in our portfolio? How do people use these spaces? How do we entice people to come back if they're going to work from home and we want them to come back to the office? Well, do they really want to be sitting in a cubicle? No, we got to make the spaces more open plan. And so with that, there was a lot of focus on ESG, environmental, social and governance, where let's make the space more green, more energy efficient. I mean, you can pick any asset class and there's so much change happening in prop tech. It's the best time ever to be in, in the sector. Yeah, absolutely. I know it was a bit of a loaded question. I know you probably can't even cover half of what is going on in the sector, but I needed to ask just because I feel like we don't have that many prop tech experts to your degree on this. And I feel like you summarize that very well. Now, I would like to hear if you have seen or are looking at any compelling startups that you've invested in at Bluefield so far and kind of what they're doing to move the industry forward. Are you able to comment on that at all? Yeah, but that's like asking me to pick a favorite child, you know. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I think I'll just pick one or two really clear pieces that might resonate with the audience. It's really sad when you look at the average net worth of a renter that six at around $6,300 is the average net worth. It's really sad when you think about that. And a lot of people are caught in this cycle of poverty where they their credit score is perpetually low. They have a hard time renting. And they're basically an underbanked. In fact, some of these are unbanked segments. Mass America, workforce housing, big opportunity. And I came across a startup called Stake, S-T-A-K-E dot rent. And Stake started out with the idea of, hey, let's really align incentives with the renter and the landlord and the owner and the property manager. Why don't we give them cash back every time they do something good? Every time they pay their rent on time, they can get a bit of cash back. If they're going to keep their unit clean and we do an annual or quarterly inspection, they get more cash back in their account. Hey, if there's a maintenance issue and they can go and, you know, change out the light bulbs or do some DIY, we'll pay them for that. We'll give them 20 rather than paying 150 bucks to send a maintenance staff down. And also, rather than giving concessions, which tenants do not appreciate, concessions like, hey, move it now and you get six weeks rent free, just give them cash back. Just give them, you know, a big amount of cash if they sign the lease today and as they pay their rent on time, it'll unlock. And that concept took off like crazy. I implemented it in my portfolio and it became a differentiator. 
people would sign my lease because they're like, oh, wow, this landlord actually cares about us and gives us cash back. And the average rent is now higher. When people are about to renew their lease or rather churn, we'll hit them early because we know they're going to renew and be like, hey, if you renew your lease today, we're going to give you another 300 bucks. That concept alone, as you were speaking, it to me, it did. It felt exactly what you said. It sounds like a landlord that cares. And that's what you want to feel when you sign your lease. You want to have someone who cares. And that is absolutely going to be the differentiator when you, and because you understand them, it shows that you understand the renter and you understand their needs and also, you know, doing those little things they probably would do anyway, but now they're getting something in return for it and incentivizing it to do it more. Absolutely. You know, with that too, what Stake did next was mind-blowing. They created a first ever checking account, basically like a bank for renters. So now, and they did a, a poll and they found out 8% of their renters have never even had a bank account before. I mean, they've been living in debt, you know, and then they launched a debit card for renters too. And the idea was, look, we're going to incentivize you to save. If you keep your money in the account with us or on your debit card, we'll give you really high cash back, more than any you know, savings account. I think right now they're offering 5% cash back. Use our debit card to spend and you'll get 5% cash back. If you keep the money in the savings account, you'll get more cash back. Now they're at a point where they're embedded in so many multifamily apartment buildings throughout the US. And they can also provide a picture of the financial health of your community. So imagine this, I can now see my community goes to Costco and they spend this much on gas. And here's the financial health. It's way better than a a rent roll that you see. Of course, of course. And you also see how users are behaving. Some users who are quickly taking the cash out of their account at foregoing interest rates. There's a concern here. This tenant might have to pay. You can be ahead of the game before things kind of go south by being able to monitor that data. Exactly, exactly. I like because it touches mass America and workforce housing. Okay, so do you have another one that you would, I know you have lots of startup children that you would, <laughs> you want to address. Is there another one that you feel you could maybe speak to? Yeah, so many. I'm trying to make it relevant to the audience. So there was one recently, Poplar Homes, okay? Poplar Homes is an example as a case study of how you can really use prop tech in property management. They have implemented technology every part of the way. And they recently, it was my first ever investment actually from my VC fund. I was so nervous when I wrote that check. I was told when repeat founders try to be investors, they make a lot of mistakes. They get too excited and they're not rational. I was extremely excited by Poplar and you know, I wrote that first check. And very recently, they announced a $53 million Series B raise. You know, We participated in that, so it's doing really well. They have built so much tech that they've basically cut down the need for a huge leasing team. They've cut down the need for a lot of... Uh, administration stuff. They've used automation everywhere you can think about. It. There's a chat bot to help with leasing. There's a chat bot to help with maintenance issues. You know, they've got like contactless 3D virtual tours, the whole thing. They've got to the point now where they're actually buying mom and pop property management firms. They're going around and they're buying traditional property management firms where, you know, someone owns a couple of hundred units and they're tired of running it because their entire life now is like, okay, I'm running around from property to property. They're buying these firms they're increasing the gross margins and they've now bought nine companies and they're buying a company every single month now. And they're on the way to becoming one of the largest property management firms in the country. Tech enabled. You can bring tech anywhere in the traditional sense, whether it's brokerage, whether it's property management, whatever part, and you can do really well. And I like that because it's a case study that people can probably appreciate. Absolutely. And obviously implementing their own technology in order to run these, I'm sure as well and manage them. So that's 
That's awesome. Now, I know we've kind of gone over a few of things that you've touched on, a few things that I had questions on later on in the conversation, but I kind of wanted to just drill in and talk about what you feel are the biggest gaps in the multifamily space, I would say, and kind of in technology and what you feel you would want to see come from technology maybe in the next year or maybe the next five years. Yeah, very few things move that fast, unfortunately, in real estate, with things, unless there's a pandemic, right? Fortunately, the time horizon that we have to take is like five to 10 years out. I don't like the fact that there's so much information asymmetry in multifamily. It's often the buyer knows something the seller doesn't know, or the seller knows something the buyers don't know, and people arbitrage that gain. I would like to see real estate and multifamily trade how stocks are traded. And I think the power of the blockchain. And the idea that you can tokenize real estate, split it into fractions, e.g. tokens, that can then be traded is going to be a revolutionary concept. It'll take a while to gain adoption, but when it does and the regulation and everything is cleared, people will be buying shares of random homes and zip codes and trading in and out, just like people buy shares of Apple or people buy commodities. I think that will be really powerful and disruptive. It will provide a new way for people to raise money for their real estate projects by raising tokens from blockchain. And the selling of real estate will really be a threat to the typical role of a broker. Brokers sell the entire building to one investor who represents multiple LPs sometimes. Well, here, if people are trading in and out in fractions, that's interesting. And also, the time horizons for real estate, a lot of the times, real estate is passed down from generation to generation. And when there's a messy event like a divorce or a death, you have to liquidate. Or when people buy and they have a fund, and the fund timeline is like seven or 10 years, they have to liquidate no matter what. Well, here, you have the option for individual shareholders to liquidate a portion of their holdings or all of it. So that, to me, is going to be the most exciting disruptive trend. I'm so excited about it. I sometimes think I should go start a company again. You should probably. I mean, that'll take some adoption. Your five to 10 year projection sounds pretty on point because I know that there's a lot of people in this industry who are not as far ahead in terms of adopting even simple digital marketing and Google ads yet. So I mean, there's there needs to be a lot more education around those things, obviously, in the industry. But that, I mean, I think you've, if someone is listening to this and doesn't, take it and see like the possibilities with it, then they need to kind of go back to the basics. But yeah, I think that you've hit the nail on the head on that one. That's interesting. If someone's listening to this and they like the idea of tokenization as a concept, even if you're a, a potential buyer and you want to buy tokens, reach out to me. I'd love to just, I'm researching the space. I'm investing actively in the space. I'm um, taking an interesting approach actually. You know, VC funds, we've been very careful to avoid conflicts of interest and competitive conflicts. But we look at this space and we're like, you know what? It's hard to pick a winner. We're going to invest in so many companies. And I've said to some companies that are in the tokenization space, we are a real estate strategic investor. Ultimately, we're going to invest in you and your competitors in this space. And people are fine with it because they're like, we get it. You know, I don't have one broker. I have multiple brokers. I don't have one property manager. I have multiple property managers. So I am talking to every tokenization startup I can come across. I've already, I'm investing in a load of them right now. And if there's even people that are interested in the space, reach out to me because I would really love to just have a conversation, you know, and ask questions because I'm trying to learn. Like, this could be the next big thing. And it's probably 10 years out, maybe five years if we're lucky, but this will change everything. 
Okay, that's quite the call out for people. I don't know. I don't know if you'll get any takers on that. I feel like that's a a big ask for some people, but I'll move down because I will let you actually share how people can reach out to you at the last part of this conversation. But obviously, I want to touch a little bit about marketing and, you know, Rensink is trying to fill the gap that exists in marketing and multifamily. How have you seen marketing technology evolve in kind of real estate or more specifically property management over the last few years? And where do you kind of see the marketing technology going in prop tech in the future? There's quite a few areas to cover when it comes to marketing technology. You could probably look at it as a breakdown of the funnel and every part of the funnel you can optimize. So one issue is how do you reach the consumer at the point where they're looking to find property and here you've got certain channels like social media which is becoming a bigger way uh, even using influencers which is a really cool way to sort of you know get people organically to see a rent opportunity as content not an ad and then there's also typical figuring out how to do paid media advertising not just social and seo optimization as well and then there's also the matching of property to the user and right now if you look at the listing marketplaces It's really flooded with classified ads and it's basically a pay-to-play business model where only really nice properties are the ones that can afford to bid and pay. And when you look at Mass America and workforce housing, you've got to scroll down to like page 10 to start to see things. So I think a better way to get discovery happening and the funnel will help. And I found my best rental opportunities have come when the description has been rubbish. Oh, really? Okay. I've bought places and I've rented places deliberately because I was like, this sounds awful. See, this sounds shady. Let me take a look. And you realize, wow, this is a beautiful place. They just didn't market it well and didn't write a good damn description. You need a video. You need HD photos. You need that fancy drone or, you know, beautiful, crazy Photoshopped whatever, right? And I perceive raw things. But really what I'm saying is that's my opportunity and someone's loss. People need to do a better job with marketing the property too. And then there's the whole, you know, signing up process. Application fees can be really high. Sometimes firms have a really black and white model of you need to be at a certain credit score and need to meet these tenant profiles. And they implement that across an entire portfolio. Well, I had that happen. I had that happen in areas where there was high immigration. I had that happen in areas where the median average income was way below. No one would ever qualify for that. Even I wouldn't. There was like a 720 credit score. I don't even have a 720 credit score. You miss one payment, you don't have a 720 credit score. I know. I know. Tell me about it. Accidentally. And uh, it just happens. <laughs> yeah. So I think flexibility there, the pricing of the rent too. So a lot of people are using dynamic pricing and that's smart, but also offering variable leasing terms too. Why do you have to be stuck on 12? You know, there's a big opportunity to do that. Then I think the other part of the uh, marketing is this is not really on the tech side. It's more on the landlord side, but segment your property. There was a time when Sonder was buying entire floors and buildings and making them short-term corporate, you know, rentals. Well, you can do that. You could potentially take some units and make them for Airbnbs and you can rent them out to traveling nurses or the military or or for students. And I think looking at your unit mix and figuring out don't sell everything as a commodity, make each one a little bit more unique and offer things to tenants. So, you know, I could go on and on about marketing technology, but all of these areas are things that very few people optimize. It's interesting you you actually bring that up because I had a conversation with a rental listing site founder who's actually, their initiative right now is to create spaces for Ukraine refugees. 
So I think that it's a really great initiative. They're working with basically those Ukrainian refugees who have escaped to Poland and they're looking for places to live in Canada right now. And we're hoping to work with large property management companies that have spaces that they would be willing to accommodate depending on the term. The terms of the leases are up to them, but basically just opening up their spaces for them. So I thought that that would be, and they're basically creating like a whole kind of new technology in order to accommodate these rental units. So that's kind of interesting and nice to see. And like you said, kind of mixing the property and using it for different reasons is definitely an interesting concept. And I think people need to be more open to it. Yeah, and very few people are doing it. It's usually the early adopters, the technology enthusiasts of companies. Most property management firms are not thinking like that. You know, they're just trying to uh, operationalize and make everything a process. And I get it. There's pressures to keep occupancy up and delinquencies low and rents high. But you got to take a step back and sometimes think, okay, how do we test and do something different? And if you do it, you can really materially improve your uh, net operating income. Absolutely. Now, I'm not going to switch back to real estate in terms of deals and things like that. I think that you've covered everything. So I'd like to ask you one question before we get to the final question. And that is, who do you think we should interview on this podcast? Who do you think someone maybe in this space, prop tech space, that would be a great person to talk to? Honestly, all the founders that you know I have in my portfolio at Bluefoot Cap that you mentioned, yeah, they're all great. I think for your listeners, you should try to get maybe the stake dot rent. Yeah, I would love to team. They would be great. The way they think about things is just there's companies I've invested in, and then there's companies you look at and you're like, wow, the way they innovate on their product, the way they really understand the user. This is going to be different. This is going to be big. And stakes are those companies where they just seem to be the model of how people should manage their real estate. Okay. Well, I'll try and I'm going to connect with you about that later, (laughs) if you don't mind. And last but not least, if listeners are looking to connect with you, obviously you've got some discussions on NFTs and things like that and tokenizing a multifamily. So where can they find you? What's the best place to find you? Yeah, my name is Z-A-I-N, Zane, at proptechvc.com. Proptechvc.com is my, you know, I coded it myself as a directory of all the you know investors that I know in PropTech and my podcast is on there too and I put some blogs on there but really zane at proptechvc.com is the best way to email me. I have a newsletter too and I would love to have conversations. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much Zane for sharing all of your knowledge with me and to our listeners and taking the limited time that you have to join me on this episode of Sink or Swim. And until next time, keep swimming. You've reached the end of another episode of Sink or Swim. Make sure to visit us at rensync.com forward slash podcast to access show notes, key takeaways, and where you can sign up to our newsletter to receive free bonus content. If you found value in the show, please also remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Thanks for listening.